Today on episode number 270 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Jamie Hanans shares about empathy and extended reality. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today's guest comes to me through my collaboration with the California State University. And in this special Teaching in Higher Ed podcast series, we highlight outstanding faculty that are transforming higher education and supporting student success throughout the California State University. These individuals have sought to address the equity gaps that previously existed in their courses through innovative course redesigns and creative teaching approaches. And boy, do I ever have someone today that definitely fulfills that. Dr. Hanans was the first teaching and learning innovations faculty fellow working on digital badges, e-portfolios, and faculty workshops related to the use of digital mediums in nursing courses. Dr. Hanans has been instrumental in exploring and sharing innovative teaching and learning practices, including open courses, digital storytelling, and online and blended best practices. Her approaches have expanded beyond nursing with a focus on the importance of remaining student-centered. Digital badges, for example, now expanded into the California State University Channel Islands faculty trainings, were originally piloted to allow students to be recognized for the soft skills in nursing, encouraging nursing students to move beyond their focus on grades to demonstrate an understanding in patient safety, function as empathetic caregivers, and provide effective communication. Her latest innovations, which you're going to hear about on today's episode, include integrating immersive, virtual, and mixed reality simulation in nursing courses. Dr. Hanans looks to utilize virtual and mixed reality to prepare students for the nursing profession by practicing difficult conversations and understanding the patient perspective that could not otherwise be experienced through these technologies. Jamie, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thanks for having me. It was fun learning about you and your work is so inspiring. And I would love to talk to you for a few minutes about the origins of that. How did you start becoming interested in nursing education? So I worked as a nurse at the bedside, of course, mostly in critical care. And often I would precept students or new grads. And I just really felt like as I worked patient to patient or worked with the new grads or students that I really could make a bigger impact. If I taught, even if three or five students out of each graduating class had the same passion and drive for nursing and caring for patients, that that would unfold every year after year after year make a bigger impact. What were you noticing at the time that were some of the challenges that they weren't getting out of their educational experiences? I think it wasn't necessarily what they weren't getting out of their educational experiences, but maybe that ability to hang on to and sustain and think about 
really, why did you become a nurse? It's really great to be able to know the labs and know the pathophysiology, but we're caring for human beings. And it's really key to be able to put yourself in their shoes and try to be compassionate and kind. And that's, you need both pieces. And I really wanted to make sure that we have nursing as a profession, growing people that are capable of really doing both. I just had a doctor's visit a day ago. And I kept, I shouldn't say a doctor's visit was a regular exam with nursing professionals. And I kept thinking about this. It was a miserable experiment. Not, not, I mean, not traumatic or anything, but I kept thinking, channel all of this, channel all of this and put it toward your teaching. And what, what kept coming to my mind was that word of empathy and truly the, the real root of that word of being able to put yourself in another person's shoes, because this is something that some of us only do every few years or every year, or maybe for some people, it's their first time. But for that person, it becomes just this rote thing of like, I've said this a million times and I don't, you know, I'm feeling impatient with you for not getting it when it's you know, been a while for you or whatever. And I kept thinking about, okay, take this experience, how you're feeling right now and just make it better for your students coming forward. Cause there has to be areas where you Bonnie do this in your own work. And, and that, so that feeling whenever we're learning something new or we're uncomfortable or we're feeling like we're in such a foreign environment is kind of healthy for us to take as educators. Yeah, it's hard, though, to be a patient, and it's really hard to put yourself in that very vulnerable position and to have to trust someone else to help you make decisions and not second-guess things, and you really need to have a strong relationship with people and an ability to connect, especially with nursing, in a quick way. You might see your healthcare provider, your physician, your nurse practitioner, whoever is leading your care, and get to know them over time, but with a nurse in acute settings or in a clinic setting, you know, you have to be able to build a relationship relatively quickly and make sure that they feel like you're centered on them and you can listen and you can hear them out and be patient and try to navigate and really critically think through how can you help them. I had a chance to get some previews from you of what we're going to speak about. <laughs> I, feel, yeah. I feel like I already have a little bit of a surprise twist coming because dun, 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 you're going to <laughs> tie this, what you just shared about with your own reason why you went into nursing education, all about empathy, all about putting yourself into this person's shoes to extended reality and augmented reality. (laughs) So, So I'm fascinated with how these are going to connect. But before we get there, we probably should just have you define some of these terms for us, I know. A lot of people have heard virtual reality as a common term, but really what's happening now with the fast growth of technology and what can be done with gaming, I mean, I think gaming probably has the longest history, but it's all being called extended reality kind of as an umbrella statement. And under that, you have different types or components or ways that you can approach it, which augmented reality is really considered a a space that you augment or use overlays of computer-generated content. So Pokemon, for example, is probably something people are familiar with. So that would be like an augmented reality where you can do, you can look for the virtual characters in space. Another approach to virtual reality is 360 imaging and doing tours where you can look around a space and maybe click on something in a space. So, you know, real estate uses 360 imaging to be able to do tours, but what if you could overlay content in there, which is what we do, and put um, information and things that people can click on to learn further about, for example, in a 
clinical room or a hospital space, I can impose a YouTube video about that particular IV pump and how to use it. So the student can look around the 360 room and space before they go into clinical. They can find the type of IV pump that's going to be used and click on it and watch the video. Um, in comparison to that, mixed reality really merges some components of digital or virtual reality with real time. And so imagine that you are going to have a conversation with a computerized but humanistic avatar on a computer screen. And that would be mixed reality. So you have this virtual human, and then you have the real space that you're interacting with, and those are merged together. And then the last thing that we're doing at Channel Islands is virtual reality. And virtual reality is really that three-dimensional environment. You usually wear a virtual reality headset, like an Oculus Rift or another type of headset that you're fully immersed. So when you look around your space, you can see a completely different space from the space you're in. And we're also doing that with the nursing students. So it's really exciting. I wish I had met you, I don't know, three years ago, two years ago, because <laughs> it makes so much sense. It really does. Should we walk through each one of these and talk about, or there's some more of yeah. one that you want to focus Let on? Let me explain what we're doing for each one, because they are a little bit different, and they do have different purposes for learning, I think. And I think they really can be done in all different disciplines, not just nursing. But for example, the augmented reality, we went to one of the hospitals in the local area that we do some clinical timeout where students go to the hospital and work with patients. And usually we do an orientation, but when we take a tour of the hospital, we really don't know how much time we'll be able to spend in any given space or room to help get the students oriented to that space. And so what we did was we went to the facility, we filmed the different types of rooms. So an intensive care room, an emergency trauma room, and then a regular telemetry or cardiac unit room. And we were able to superimpose some of the tools like YouTube videos about the pumps or different equipment in the room, or I can put little buttons so that they could take a deeper dive. So in the ICU room, uniquely, I always think this is funny. There's a little kind of half wall in the back corner of the room and there's a sink. Well, under the sink, if you open the cupboard, there appears a toilet, which you wouldn't know is there if you never looked for it. <laughs> so I always have a little button or arrow for students to click on, and then they can see the still image of the cupboards open with the toilet. So they know that that's there. Just knowing how to navigate your space is kind of a hurdle when you're going into a new semester at a new facility. And so the idea was that this would help them get oriented to that space. In other disciplines, I really think this could be valuable in spaces that you can't always get to. So if you wanted to share about you know, uh, an auditorium or theater for your performing arts students, or you wanted to share about a certain uh, beach site cleanup, and maybe it's only occurring in that time and space, you could really film it and still use it later. And how difficult is this on the technological front? I mean, I'm assuming you would have to be able to know how to film and edit video, like if this is something you're going to do. What is the difficulty then of augmenting that video that you've filmed? It's very easy. We use a web-based tool. We use ThingLink is the name of the web-based tool we used. It's it's just a website and we have an account and we drop the 360 image in there and then you're able to add tools, images, videos, buttons on it. It's I I didn't do any training to do it. <laughs> Even the 360 imaging is very easy. You just have to get one of those 
360 cameras. And then it helps if you have a, a stand for it to be on as far as stability of the image. And that's it. So you're in the augmented reality. You're talking about pictures. I think I thought these were videos, but we're. It's we're- really 360 images and still shots. And then you can embed other types of content. So Got you it. can embed YouTube videos or tutorials, or you can even embed a quiz onto that 360 image where they can still click around the space. So it is very interactive, but it's not a complete video. So you're using a 360 degree camera that is built to do still images. And then ThingLink, we've talked about it on the show before. I mean, so that, that and I, I can say from having used it a couple of times, that is not a difficult thing at all. That's a very... So it would be having the equipment to do it and then having access to ThingLink. But this seems like a very doable thing. And like you said, in a lot of different disciplines, one of the things as you were sharing about capturing these images of places that you're not sure if you're going to be able to get to on your tour, because there may be something going on at that time, is creating more consistency at the same time as allowing more freedom and agency for the learner. I mean, you're doing both at the same time because maybe I already know that the toilet's there because for whatever reason, I'm familiar with that context, but I didn't know how to use this other mechanism over here. I mean, it it really seems to add a lot of agency to your learners. Yeah. And for us, when you go from one hospital to another, their IV pumps might look different or their wall suctioning equipment or tubing or whatever might look different, where their computers are for charting might be different. And so you can really help get them better prepared by having the ability for them to independently go into this. All they have to do is log into their computer. I have it embedded in our course and they just click around on their own time. And so as far as how much time they want to spend on it and how far they want to go with looking at the resources, it's up to them, but it's a place where it helps give them a space to reflect and learn on their own, even after we leave clinical, so that if they were nervous to ask questions, hopefully they can go to this space and, and get support in another way. And the second one is the mixed reality. Would you share about that one? Yes. So mixed reality, I think, is really interesting because what the students don't know is that they come in, I think, thinking that they're going to talk to this computerized avatar and get very generic responses. And so imagine being in a small classroom space. There's a screen on the wall. There's a computerized or digital room with a person sitting there or sometimes two. And they respond to your questions and talk. And the goal is to have a conversation based on whatever the scenario is. So for us, we have had them talk to family members, for example, of a patient who has been in the intensive care for a week. She's not doing well. She has multiple organ system failure. So she's not actively dying, but that's kind of the direction she's going and she's requiring a lot of support for breathing and otherwise. And so they need to talk to the family members as the nurse to say, what would you like to do? What direction do you want to go? Did your mom want everything done or did she want to be comfortable and not have all of this? Because the next step would be to put a feeding tube in and because she needs nutrition. And so they have to start negotiating that conversation. That's a really hard conversation to have. And as a nursing student, you cannot practice that in a hospital setting. You can observe it. You can participate in it as far as being there when the family has a conference. But it's not a space that we can allow students to lead that discussion or negotiate it. And really, this gives them a space to practice communication skills 
and practice that difficult conversation and reflect on how they present their words and how their physical behaviors are. You know, if they uncomfortably laugh, it's noticed. Mm -hmm. Again, they think they're going to get a really generic response, I think, walking into this, just as you might if you thought you were playing an interactive game. But what they don't know is that we're using web conferencing and there is an actor behind the scenes. And so they get a very live response. And when they do giggle uncomfortably, or if they do say something that doesn't make sense to the person they're talking to, they get called out on it and they have to think about that. The great news is that although it might seem very stressful to the student, they can pause at any time. They have control of pausing the scenario and looking to the rest of their classmates or their team. That's kind of their brain. And they can say, what do I do? You know, how do I negotiate this now? And so you might have a conversation saying, well, did your mom want all of this? And Vivian, her daughter says, she didn't want all this, but I'm not ready to lose her. If we take the breathing tube out, does that mean she just dies? And the student needs to think about what they can say in response to that. And so they can either look to their team or they can answer, or if they answer and say, well, we don't know, you know, it just, it makes it very real. And those are the conversations we really want to help students prepare for because they are hard. And we want them to be able to navigate those in a space that is supportive and comforting to the family, but is clear as far as what the medical kind of picture looks like. I'm surprised by the parallels between the kind of work that I've done before involving role plays, the way that it was commonly used in the industry I was in. Mm -hmm. And it was so much of helping equip people to know that these nervous laughter things or a lot of excessive filler words or these, these behaviors that really detract from really being present for another human being during times of stress to help them replace it with something else. But you often have to help them realize that the pauses are not so damaging as they think they are. They feel like they're 8 million years, but they're actually just a few seconds. And sometimes those few seconds, as you're gathering your thoughts, taking some deep breaths, allow that other person to process what you're saying. And I'm hearing so much of what you're talking about is just helping them in terms of know that they can put it on pause, we can actually put a little bit of these real world situations on pause it, but we won't need quite as much time because we will have been practiced up at gathering our thoughts and taking stock of the situation. Well, and listening, right? The other, it's interesting because I went into this thinking, this is so great. I'm so excited because we can finally build communication skills and have them think about what they're saying and how they're saying it. But then I realized while we're in these sessions and I'm there to help facilitate and guide and I can pause the sessions as well. So they are supported all the way through so that they're not, you know, on the spot. But what a great way to have them use noticing skills, which we really want nursing students to be able to be good at assessment. Notice the body language because the avatar does move and shift and softer tones or, or stronger tones. And really notice the body language, notice the tone and the volume, notice the response and listen to what they're saying or asking. They can do a better job at the bedside when they hear what the patient is saying. Tell us a little bit about the technological aspect of this then. What's required and how difficult is this for someone to learn how to do? 
So we partner with CSU Northridge to provide this and nursing and education are doing this now, but I think any field that has some space where you would interact with other human beings, I think it's a great place for business. I think it's a great place for dealing and navigating difficult situations, maybe employee or staff things. There's a lot of spaces you could go to uh, to do this, but technologically, it does not take a lot. Most campuses have the equipment that's already needed, which is a computer and a screen. We use Zoom for our web conferencing in partnership with CSUN, so that's very easy. They just give you the link. Um, The difficult side is you need to have contracted hours with CSU Northridge with their SIMPACT program because they provide the avatars and the space. So we're not creating these avatars or space. I have partnered with them to develop a couple of scenarios that have been best for nursing because I've had some background in simulation scenario publishing and design. And so building the scenario, I've worked with them because they had a lot of educational focused scenarios, but not as many nursing, but they have the backgrounds for the different spaces that the avatars are in and they help with the equipment to facilitate having the actor respond as the avatar. Are you telling me about two different things, Zoom in one context and an avatar, or is the avatar in Zoom? The avatar is in Zoom. Oh my we use gosh. Zoom. <laughs> You're blowing the... my mind over here. <laughs> yeah. So the actor who oh is gosh. acting as the avatar on screen. So you have the avatar on screen. We have our actor who is at CSU Northridge, conveniently near Burbank. So there might be some actors in that area looking for work. <laughs> um, but we partner with them. So the actual actor in person responding is in Northridge. We're using Zoom to pop up the avatar on the screen and interact with them. And SimPack is the name of the program that contains yes. these avatars and they get built and constructed and fascinating. Yes. So anyone who's interested can look up CSU Northridge SimPact, S-I-M-P-A-C-T. And I will, oh, I, I was missing the T on the end. C-S-I-M-P-A-C-T. Got it. And I will link to that in the show notes too. So people don't have to go do what I just did and spell it wrong the first time. All right. So our last one here is the virtual reality. Would you share about this one? Yes. So again, we really have taken a big jump when we found a product that we thought would work. Um, We don't have a computer science program that's large enough to facilitate building these types of experiences at this point. And so we've partnered finding products that we can use to facilitate these types of really innovative experiences. And Embodied Labs is an amazing startup company that's been around for a couple of years now. And it's, I love the background story because it fits right into my nursing background where there's two sisters whose mom was dealing with macular degeneration, which causes a big black blob in your vision and you can't see and hearing loss and then subsequently later Alzheimer's. And so they needed a tool to help caregivers for their mom really understand her frustration and understand what it's like to not be able to see, which is initially how they started. And they've even shown us Uh, glasses that they started as a mock-up with a big piece of tape in the middle to block the vision and really how that's transitioned into this experience where you put on a virtual headset and suddenly you become a 74 year old African-American male who has macular degeneration and cannot see there's a big black blob of vision he can see peripherally but 
right in the center of your vision is a big black spot and you can't hear very well. And as Alfred, who you've embodied, you're trying to now navigate family conversations and a doctor's office visit without being able to really see or hear very well. That's powerful because in seven minutes in an immersive virtual reality experience with a headset on, my students have such a different understanding of vision and hearing loss than they do from reading about it and talking about it in class. And so in a very short time frame, we have a really powerful impact. And so now I had students just weeks after the first time that we had done this experience going to the hospital setting and caring for patients. And even on the cardiac units, now they were reporting to me not only about heart or lung disease or what was going on with the patient, but that they were now mentioning they have vision loss or they have hearing loss in their reports, which means that that was now front of mind. And from the patient experience, if you know I have hearing or vision loss and you're attending to that and you're making sure I can see my tray or my glasses or my phone it makes the patient experience that much better. And so that's why I get really excited about it because it it then aligns to all the reasons I decided to do nursing education, you know, to make the patient experience better. I could see how all three of these examples you've given us or these broad categories of types of technology fit so well with your desire why you first decided to do this. It's so it's just a what a wonderful set of stories. Would you share with us about virtual reality and how difficult this one is to get into? I know you mentioned building them from scratch would be very, very technologically have a lot of requirements. But what about purchasing this? And, and what do we need? And how hard would that be to do? So for me, I would never be able to build these. But luckily, Embodied Labs has taken that on. And so you can link to their website. It's embodiedlabs.com. They currently have four labs that they run. Alfred, who I told you about, who has vision and hearing loss. Beatrice, who has early to middle to late stages of Alzheimer's disease. Clay, who is a veteran who gets a terminal diagnosis and decides to do hospice at home. And then their newest lab is Dima, and she is a Muslim woman who has Parkinson's and needs to transition from home to a long-term care facility for safety. And so they continue to build those labs. What's great is you pay a one-time annual license. It's a little bit pricey, so finding funding is helpful but it's $6,000 for the year. It's not pricey in comparison to what you get, I don't think, because a lot of products that I've found do student-by-student licensing. And so based on the number of students will be based on how much you end up having to pay for the product. And this isn't that way. They have a one-time-for-the-year licensing fee, and you can have as many students as you want do the labs, which that's where I think they've gone Uh, gotten a lot of power because we can integrate health science students. I can have faculty try it out. I can have a lot of different people try to experience it. I even think this would be a great learning tool for the community. So you have family members dealing with someone with Alzheimer's, let them experience it from Beatrice's perspective. And how great is that for the community and for, for families trying to navigate these difficult chronic diseases. So you need the computer equipment to run the scenarios. So there's a laptop and headset and then hand sensors. I don't think I explained very well that you do have hand tracking so you can Mm. reach and grab for things. And so it's about $3,000 for one setup, but those are one-time costs. So currently we have three setups, two that are mobile and one stationary, and we're hoping to get two more mobile units and be able to facilitate more 
students through each semester. I know we have so much more that we get to talk about today, but I can't resist just asking real quick about the debrief of something like this. Because if you fully immerse me in something yeah. like that, I, I, I can only imagine, I mean, you talked about Alzheimer's, my family's been touched through that. I mean, I, there's all these things that might trigger us, or just even if we're just human beings with empathy. It's such a great question because debriefing is something, at least in nursing and in the realm and really research and publications behind the idea of simulations. Nursing does a lot of simulations with mannequins. And there's always this background of the debriefing is the key area where you really can reflect on your learning and think about what impact it has and talk about all of the different components and things that you just experienced or saw or were immersed in. And what does that mean, right? And so debriefing is really important. And I think because virtual reality and mixed reality is relatively new in the way that we're using it, at least, debriefing needs to be considered because we know from years of simulation that that's really critical and that's a critical learning point. So what we've done is we have some reflective questions. They really have a whole dynamic of a pre-briefing where they get some information, and this would be both for the mixed and virtual reality simulations. They get pre-information and questions to think about. They do the experience, and then we come back together and talk about it with some guided questions. Those are all based on the content in the actual scenario or simulation, but it's really important that they do come back together and talk, and this could be in either small groups or it could be in a, a larger lecture classroom group of maybe 40 or 50 students. But there's always a debriefing portion because you're right. You want to come back and say, what does that mean? And students get emotional and they start to feel what it's like. Not all students, but we've had a number of students that really we check in with them right after and we do some I guess, informal debriefing at the time if we need to, but then we come back together, usually within a week time frame of the experience and talk in more depth about it. I'm going to put a link in the show notes to episode 139, and that was with Stephanie Lancaster, and the title of the episode is Effective Debriefing Approaches, and that would be a good one for people who want to learn a little bit more about the research, and it was a long time ago, that was, oh gosh, that was many, many moons ago, but I'm still all very relevant, and she had some links to, for a little bit more, if you want, you want, uh, she had the 3D model of debriefing, diffusing, discovering, and deepening. So that's a good episode if you want more about this process. Yeah, and there's also the ANASCAL simulation guidelines. It's the really kind of the founding guidelines for simulation practices. And they have a whole section of guided debriefing if you want to look at specifically nursing type debriefing. But we're still, I, like I said, that idea of virtual and mixed reality is still new. And they're looking at redefining those terms to make sure that they're current. And the Healthcare Simulation Dictionary by AHRQ has new definitions this year for those terms. Before we get to the recommendations segment, you've given us so much to think about and reflect and go learn more about, but I I can't resist asking you a bit about your work in textbook affordability. You've done a lot there in Channel Islands, and specifically, because I know there's so much you could tell us, but specifically, if you can be talking to us as individual faculty and challenging us that this is not that hard, this is doable for us, and it can have such a payoff. It is. We have, I've been very fortunate to be a part of the affordable learning solutions effort on our campus. We call it OpenCI, 
really looking at textbook affordability, but also key components that we've reflected back on that this effort has to do with our equity and accessibility and really making sure that students can get the materials they need to be successful in college. College is very expensive. And if we can negate that a little bit by looking at the resources that we're using, figuring out if there's appropriate and still valid and quality resources online or through our library. There's a number of really interesting ways that you can reduce costs for students for their course materials. And that's really what we've done. We have some amazing faculty on this campus that have jumped in or actually were already, some of our faculty were already looking at no-cost efforts before we even launched OpenCI. Uh, Dr. Jacob Jenkins is my co-collaborator on this project, and we are the co-coordinators for the Affordable Learning Solutions effort. We have saved students $2 million in three years just by getting faculty on board to look at their courses, whether it's course by course, one at a time, and explore what is possible. I just worked with a faculty this morning, actually, on email she's interested in changing her course. This is the textbook she used before. And I was able to find two eBooks in the library that we already have access to that students would have free access to that were comparable, as well as a number of other capabilities of looking at journal articles, videos, TED Talks. You know, really now I think a lot of faculty already supplement their courses with other resources, websites, journal articles, videos to really dig in deeper, maybe even Netflix, right, to get the personal story. Mm -hmm. And if we look at that as the course resources, instead of being very tied to a textbook, there's so much possibility of what you can do to help save students money. And it makes it more accessible. And it, it, you know, working families, working parents, students that are taking care of their parents, you know, wherever they are, they can get to their materials because most have smartphones. And so it makes it even that much better to be able to get what they need at any time or place. I mentioned to you that I teach at a really small school and when I and I get to talk to incredible people like you that are part of big systems that will often have a lot more money than we do. And I used to feel like, oh, this is something that's just beyond the reach. And it is so not. In fact, there are advantages to being a part of a small community in that sometimes we get to experiment a little bit more. We don't have a formal thing we have to apply. Or I mean, some people, they have to formally ask the department if it's okay to change the textbook. I get to pick whatever textbooks I want or don't want. And so I just wanted people to really be encouraged by your work because I really see a lot of entrepreneurial spirit coming out of the Cal State University system. And you're just such an example of that. Well, we were very lucky to be able to apply for grants to support faculty. A lot of it is faculty time, but it's such a great way to invest in your students. And usually just like finding a new textbook, you do it once and it becomes easier the next time. And it's just a matter of kind of jumping in with both feet and trying it out and then fixing it on round two and getting student feedback. Another great thing is to have students help vet some of your resources. Maybe that's an assignment is go find out what's the latest, greatest for my field, let's say in cardiac health. And they can help find some of those resources you can integrate and it gives them ownership. And so it's a great way to support kind of higher level thinking and teaching and learning. That is so true. This is the point in the show where we each get to share recommendations. And I have a couple of them today. They're a little bit 
on the more playful side. One, it doesn't cost a thing, and the other one has a little price, but I think it's worth it. So the first one, I came across on Twitter, somebody tweeting a picture from a website called birdlibrary.org. And when you go to birdlibrary.org, which you'll be able to do in the show notes, this is what you'll find out about them. What happens when a librarian and a woodworker, both with a love of birds, get together? The Bird Library is born. We decided to bring our love of libraries, books, building, and birding together into a project that would feed our birds' stomachs and brains. We were inspired by the Norwegians that created a bird feeder designed as a coffee bar for birds called the Peep Show, maybe P-I-I-P Show. It gave us the idea that, sure, birds need caffeine, but what they really need are books. Our slogan is Bird Library, Feeding the Bird Brains of Virginia. And this site is full of so many fun pictures of the building that they constructed, the bird house, and wonderful tweets. The one that caught my eye is because my kids are really getting into Star Wars, which people who've been listening recently would know that my daughter came on and shared her recommendation for an episode. And so the one of their most recent pictures is, are you my mother? No, Luke, I am your father. And it's the a picture of actual birds in the bird library visiting that got sunflower seeds all over. It's just such a fun place. So I'm going to be linking to that in the show notes. Please go have a look at birdlibrary.org. And the second one kind of relates to the episode, not really, but kind of. And that is when I think about my own time spent in hospitals, I think about socks. And as funny as this is, I actually... <laughs> Some hospital experiences were joyous because it meant bringing our children home, but many of them weren't. But you always get good socks when you're in hospitals because they have the little, what do you call that stuff on the bottom of a sock? The tread. Yes, the tread (laughs) so you don't slip and fall. But I have some socks to recommend today and they're called Bombas socks. I love Bombas. Aren't they amazing? I was going to say Bombas if you didn't say it. Not only that, but they donate. Yes. So I have a friend who had a, she has a trailer and it's a shower trailer and they go around and provide showers and clean clothes for homeless. And she got donated socks from Bombas. So she has clean socks for all of these people as well. Oh, it's so great. So the ones I wear most of the time at home, if it's just casual, are the ankle length. And they never go down into your shoe, but they're also not super high on your leg. They're like the perfect amount of padding and cushion. They are really high quality socks. And then I recently started doing some of their work socks. And I discovered the joys of compression socks. I never had any idea. All of my socks were lower on my leg. And now I'm like all the way up to the knee and and uh it's my um assistant and I were talking about how it's just like a little hug for your legs (laughs) well you're so smart to recommend socks too because for nurses they need good socks Uh, well these are (laughs) these are good and and Jamie can back me up and she's a professional so she would know (laughs) anyway I'm going to pass it over to you Jamie for whatever you'd like to recommend I would love to recommend anybody who's interested in digging in deeper about textbook affordability that they look at the website coolfored.org and it's C-O-O-L for the number four ed.org. This is a collaborative site that has a plethora of resources from a collaborative between the California Community Colleges and the CSU Chancellor's Office and the UC system to help you find ways to reduce textbook costs. There's course examples, there's all different disciplines, and it's a great place to start if you're looking for textbook affordability 
efforts and resources. And then, as I said before, the only other recommendations I would have would be for the CSU Northridge SIMPAC and Embodied Labs. Thank you so much, Jamie, for your time today. It has been such an honor to get to talk to you. And also just you took us on these unexpected twists and turns. I love how you've connected your real mission and sense of purpose in life with experimenting playfully with these emerging technologies. Thank you so much for all you've given us to think about today and try out. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, I definitely have a long list of things that I cannot wait to go explore. I was sort of laughing because as soon as I stopped the interview, I went over to my email and there was an email advertisement from Bombas. It was like they were overhearing what we were saying. I'm kidding. No, I'm sure it was because I order quite a lot of socks from them. Anyway, I've got lots to go think about and so do you. I hope you'll go to the show notes at teachinginhighered.com slash 270 to have a look at all these resources that Jamie Hannans has provided to us. Thank you so much, Jamie. And thanks to all of you for listening. And if you haven't subscribed yet to the newsletter, you should, because then you don't have to remember to go look at the show notes. You can subscribe at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. We'd love to have you in community there. And I'll look forward to the next time on Teaching in Higher Ed.